I find that most pastors like to golf. I don't like to golf. A lot of pastors have a lot of Civil War-related hobbies. I don't have those either. But one hobby that I think all preachers have in common is that we're always collecting sermon illustrations. Some of them I get right out of your life, tuck them away. But mostly we're looking at headlines. We're looking at things that are going on around us. We're listening to other preachers and going, ooh, I'll use that later. You ever do that one? You always give credit, right? Yeah, me too. But, you know, I think most preachers, while they're continually collecting and curating good sermon illustrations, kind of involuntarily continue to collect really bad ones, Uh, especially sermon illustrations that are used again and again and again. And every time you start to hear it, you go, oh, don't do that one. That one's awful. That, oh, oh, he's doing it. He's going for it. I think one of the worst ones is the guy who operates the bridge, the train bridge. You know what I'm talking about? There's a, a man who, who sits in a little booth, and I, I heard this as a little kid. I could see it perfectly because there were several drawbridges in Bay City where I grew up. There was a guy in a little booth operating the drawbridge. Well, this guy was in one of those where it turns the train track 90 degrees. Boats can go through, but then when a train is coming, he's got to hit the button and it turns it back so the train can go over. It's a very important job. Lives are on the line. And one day he's like, we well, don't be a good idea to bring my little kid with me. So he brings his son with him and he's, I guess he's a bad parent because he lets his son like escape the booth and start wandering around and he hears his son fall into the gears Now, I have looked into this because it's so horrifying to me, and it's impossible, thankfully. But in the illustration, he hears his son fall down into the gears, and then he hears a train whistle. And he looks up, and a train is coming, and he says, here's my son, he's down in the gears, here comes the train, and there's hundreds of people in it, and he has to make the decision, and he closes the thing and it turns and his son is crushed by the gears and then the train goes by and all the people on the passenger train smile and wave and they have no idea what's just been done for them to save them and then the preacher gets kind of that whispery raspy thing going that i find so annoying it says that's what jesus has done for us god the father through his son is like wait what not this stop 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 that is not at all what god has done for you and me Not at all. First of all, God abhors child sacrifice. That's throughout the whole Bible, where you throw your child into the uh, cauldron or the fire or the gears in order for other people to apparently have the benefit. But more than that, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. That's the kind of picture we have here. Someone saying, Jesus saying, here is my life. My life, not someone else's, mine, a sacrifice for you. And he wasn't a a little child. Not only was he a grown man when he decided to go to the cross, he's God in the flesh and has decided in the covenant redemption from before the foundation of the world within the council of the Trinity that this is how we would be saved, that the Son would come and die and rise again. And by believing in him, he would pay for our sins, he would give us his righteousness, and that is salvation. But perhaps at least as bad or even worse, or at least far more prevalent, is the illustration about the man who teaches a, a young boy who's, who's possibly on the wrong road and maybe going to be getting into trouble and going into a, a bad kind of life. He teaches him a spiritual lesson from dogfighting. And the lesson isn't, look at those guys who are involved in dogfighting, isn't that bad? No, 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 it's like, of course we're dogfighting, but let me teach you like a cute little object lesson from it. 
It's horribly offensive. Actually, the version I've heard most frequently and even have in one of those volumes of collected sermon illustrations in my study, it's a wise old Native American, and he has a black dog, which clearly represents evil, and a white dog, which represents good, and he says to the young boy, what if I make these dogs fight? Which one will live? It's like it was designed to be as offensive as possible so that everyone would hear it and go, awful. And beyond that, it is offensively unbiblical because the answer he gives is, which dog will win? The one that I feed more. And then he tells the young man, in the same way we each have two dogs in us, a good one and a bad one, and whichever one we feed more, that's who we will be. Now, who is it you want to be? Which dog do you want to feed? Now, the idea that inside each person is equal capacity to do good or to do evil, and whichever one we kind of empower is going to determine who we are and how we turn out, that's something I would expect the average person on the street to agree with, but not a Christian who has read and understood their Bible, and certainly not a preacher of the gospel presenting some Looney Tunes vision of the human condition where there's an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder and it's all up to me and which way my heart happens to go or my will happens to lead me when we know from Scripture that my heart is desperately wicked and my will is broken and that apart from Christ washing away my sins and granting me His righteousness, this can only end with me following the left shoulder. In fact, I'm more on the devil's shoulder than the other way around. But once I've put my faith in Christ and been born again by the Spirit of God, I am now free to follow Jesus. Not with an angel on my shoulder, but with God the Holy Spirit indwelling within me, empowering me. St. Paul walked us through this whole thing step by step in the first half of the book of Ephesians. I'm not going to take you through all of it. To sum up, this comes down to identity. Not, I am what I do, but who am I and who did I used to be? We were vessels of wrath, lost, dead in our transgressions, in bondage to sin. We are new creations, alive in Christ, with a new heart and new appetites. Which is why the scripture tells us in Romans 8, 13, that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. This all raises the questions, though. If if I'm a new creation, if I put my faith in Jesus and he gave me a new heart, like you told the kids a moment ago, how come I continue to struggle with sin? Why is it even necessary for St. Paul to tell us not to do these wicked things and to do these good things? Why is any of this necessary? Well, Michael Horton calls this the paradox of the Christian life. And he writes, On one hand, we're liberated from sin in Christ and are a new creation. Yet on the other hand, we live in this evil world and continue to pretend that we are not those whom God has worded us to be in Christ. This is almost like a reverse hypocrisy. Jesus warns us about hypocrisy where we pretend outwardly to be very righteous while inwardly we are wicked. It's a kind of acting, and it's it's a disconnect that Jesus says is going to lead people to their spiritual demise. And yet, there's also the reverse that, that can happen when a believer inwardly has been declared righteous by God, has put their faith in Jesus, has been washed but they live and speak and even think as if they are still 
in their sins. Luther summed up this whole tension with a Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously just or righteous and sinner. Simultaneously righteous and sinner. This is the already but not yet nature of our faith. The tension of the Christian life. We've been justified, declared righteous, washed clean of sin, Christ's righteousness imputed to us, meaning that it has been credited to our account. We are righteous. God says it. God sees it. And now, this life that we're living is when our walk, our conduct, our words, our thoughts catch up with that declaration of righteousness so that there is less and less a disconnect between who God says we are and how we live and think and speak and what we desire. Before we have communion, we always pray together that confession prayer. And I ask you a series of questions and I answer them myself. I don't know if you hear that because it's important that we are all confessing our sins. I'm not forgiving your sins. God is. And one thing I ask, I think the last thing I ask is, do you intend to live a holy life as in God's presence and to strive to live holy even as Christ has made you holy? Do you strive to be who God has already made you to be? The problem that gets in the way and gums up the works is our indwelling sin. This is what Paul is describing in Romans 7 when he says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do, that I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells within me. So there is sin that dwells within us. And when we give in to that, what suffers is not our salvation, but our relationship with our Savior. And that is a very important distinction. Or as David put it, what suffers is not our salvation, but the joy of our salvation. You remember when he, uh, David, the man after God's own heart, went on a sinning spree like no other, in which he broke all Ten Commandments in the course of like 25 minutes, and then he doubled down on it, and then he tripled down on it. And finally, when someone came and held him accountable and he repented, he, he writes this beautiful psalm of repentance, which we are going to read on Wednesday for our Ash Wednesday service, in which he says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. A thousand years before Christ came, he knew because the Holy Spirit was inspiring him not to pray, Restore unto me my salvation, which clearly I've lost. No, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He had grieved his Lord. He damaged the relationship and he longed for it to be restored. This is, in fact, what the Old Testament temple worship and sacrificial system was all about. The relationship. The the Old Testament saints were not saved by offering grain offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifices on the altar. They were saved by grace through faith, just as you and I are. All that stuff there, it pointed forward to Jesus, and it kept the relationship clear and open. And the same is true of our relationship with God. We're not saved by works. That was clear in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right? We're not saved by what we do, but we show our love for Jesus by keeping his commandments. That's what he said to us. He said, if you love me, obey my commandments. We want to maintain that relationship and we want it to grow, to grow deeper, to grow stronger. 
We also, though, have a relationship with our spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It ought to be an adversarial relationship, but too often it's not. Thankfully, it's not as simple as an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other. It's Christ dwelling in our hearts, His Spirit sealing us unto the day of salvation, while our flesh continues to long for carnal satisfaction within us, and the world continues to try and press us into its mold from outside, and the devil accuses and deceives us to try and tell us that, again, we are what we do which is not what Scripture teaches. It's a lie that we need to not believe. So, if we wanted to take that terrible sermon illustration about the dogfighting and make it useful and biblical, we might say that rather whichever impulse or yin or yang inside of us that we feed is going to be the one that prevails. What if we said that whichever relationship we feed the most will grow and determine the direction of our spiritual lives as we go forward. Is it going to be the relationship with our God, our Savior, or the relationship with the world, the flesh, and the devil, our enemies? And when I talk about feeding a relationship, you might think, okay, Zach, that's a little you know, touchy-feely. I'm not talking about some Cosmo quiz type thing. This is common sense. You feed relationships. <laughs> Let me give you an example. My, my best friend from most of my teen years, Eric, he and I don't really talk anymore. About three weeks ago, we chatted a little bit on Messenger, traded some jokes, remembered some good times, and I saw that we hadn't done that in about five years. I haven't laid eyes on the guy in 20 years. He lives in Attica, Michigan, hour and 10 minutes away. We haven't gotten together. Not once. What happened? Did we have a big blow-up fight and say, I never want to see you again, man? No. We just sort of stopped. We drifted apart. We didn't feed that relationship. We both went off to college. We fed other relationships. Other things came into the fore, and it fell away. I'll occasionally hear about a marriage ending because we just grew apart. And at the same time as we were just growing apart, there was this other person at work, and we were growing closer together. You know, it's just no one's fault. These things happen. No, these things don't just happen. Certainly, it takes two people to make a strong marriage, or rather, it takes two people and and one Savior to make a very strong marriage, But each individual has control over which relationships you will feed and which relationships you will neglect to feed. And it's Valentine's Day, and maybe I should mention that some of you ought to think about feeding your relationship with your spouse if you haven't been. Putting some effort into it. Making it a priority. And some of you may need to starve out a relationship with someone that's in danger of dragging you down into sin and sabotaging your marriage. But the same thing is true of our spiritual relationships. We're in control of which ones we starve and which ones we feed. When someone says to me, I've lately not felt like God is very close to me. You know, it's almost like, like God isn't nearby anymore. My first question is, okay, have you been feeding that relationship? Have you been feeding it? Well, what does it eat? Well, just what God tells us. Scripture, prayer, the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper. Gathering for worship, fellowship with fellow believers, repentance, pursuing holiness, this sort of thing. And nine times out of ten, if I start digging a little with that person, I'll find that the answer is no, I've I've actually kind of not been doing those things. 
And, and they'll try, try to imply it's because I felt like God isn't closer, but then to dig a little deeper and, well, no, maybe that's why I feel like God isn't as close anymore. I've not been feeding the relationship. I've been feeding other things. I've been distracted by other things. It just isn't a priority anymore. The second question I ask such an individual, just as important as have you been feeding the relationship with your God is, have you been starving the relationship with the world, the flesh, and the devil? Have you been intentionally sabotaging those relationships? Because the scripture tells us, commands us to do that. As it comes to the world, 1 Peter 1, escape the corruption that is in the world. Or Romans 12 too, right? Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What about the flesh? Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh. Don't give it anything. Don't give it, don't give it a moment. Don't give it an inch. And here in this passage, in chapter 27, Ephesians 4, 27, give no opportunity to the devil. The world, the flesh, the devil, give not an inch, don't give any quarter, don't give any rations, don't feed the devil, don't say, hey, I haven't seen you in a while, let's catch up, but just, you know, casual. I don't want this to get out of hand. In 2 John, the apostle, the apostle of love tells us if there is someone who's a false teacher, they're teaching false things about Christ, do not have this person in your home and do not welcome him. If that's what the apostle of love will teach us about human false teachers, what should we assume about what we should do with our relationship with the devil? And should we let it continue, but, you know, not get serious? Or do we need to cut it off? Well, here we're told, do not give, in fact, literally, the, the Greek here says, do not give tapas to the devil. And we're not talking about small Spanish savory dishes, tapas. It's the Greek word tapas, which means place, right? You've heard of topography, I've got a topographical map of Israel in my study. You can feel like all the, the elevation, the field, the valleys, the, the, the hills, the mountains, all that kind of stuff. Do not give any place to the devil. Don't give many of your topography. The NIV says do not give the devil a foothold. Not even enough space to put a single foot down. Because then he'll say, yeah, let me stay in this little side room just tonight. Come on, I'm, remember the old times? All, all we've been through together... And then maybe I'll move some of my stuff in, but it's just temporary. You wouldn't put me out in the cold, would you? Yep. It was cold last night. It was like zero. Enjoy it. Soak it up. Hot where you're going. Now, with all that in view, when we read these commands about how we must live as Christians, we can be comforted that what we do won't determine who we are. Which dog I feed says who I'm going to be. Rather, who we are must determine how we live. This whole section began with the command to walk worthy of your calling. Walk worthy. God has already said this is who you are. Walk worthy of that. And the context here, the last couple of verses from last time, read this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the language of taking off and getting rid of clothes that don't fit you anymore. And, and I don't even mean like they don't, you can't button them, but they just don't fit who you are. Right? I mean, I know that there are probably people I went to college with and high school with who still have some of those Jinko jeans. You guys remember those? Maybe not. They were so big, you could fit two legs through one pant leg. 
And people walked around with them and they went to, you know, concerts and did their skateboard tricks. And someone's got one in the back of the closet. It's like, dude, get rid of those. That's really not who you are anymore. You sell insurance. You've got four kids. It's time to let go of the Jinko jeans. They don't fit. Or when a prisoner is released from prison. You know what they do? They give him back his street clothes. They don't say, head on out in that orange jumpsuit, because that's not who he is anymore. It wouldn't make sense. So here, put on the clothes of a regular citizen and enter back into society. And the same is true of us. We were prisoners. We're not anymore. And yet, sometimes, I find that I look in the mirror, and I'm wearing the orange jumpsuit. I'm, I'm clothing myself with deeds and thoughts and impulses and words that fit my former status as a prisoner in bondage to sin rather than my current status as being free in Christ. And when that happens, you've got two options. You can either say, oh, I guess I'm a prisoner again and act like it and live like it. Or you can say, what am I doing wearing this? That makes no sense. I'm a free man. I'm a free woman. Take it off and throw it away. You know, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, he came out of the tomb. He was wearing grave clothes, which meant he was wrapped tightly with strips of linen and stuff. He had to kind of shuffle out. He didn't look down and go, I'm dead, I guess. And then, oh, hey, there's a, a grave. I guess I should head there and kind of shimmy back in. No, Jesus said, take those off. He is alive. He was dead. Now he's alive. That is exactly our situation. So what does it look like in the lives of believers to put off the old and put on the new? Well, that is kind of what Paul answers with the rest of the book of Ephesians. Here in this passage, he quickly gives us five examples. And we're going to really quickly go through those five because they make sort of a composite picture of one example of how we can forget to take off the old and put on the new. We can neglect to feed our relationship with God and instead feed into the world, the flesh, and the devil and our old connections to those things and find ourselves bereft of the joy of our salvation and our relationship with God in big trouble. So number one, put off lies and put on truth in your speech. And this word that ESV translates uh, uh, falsehood, put off falsehood, in verse 25, it's the word pseudos, pseudos. It's where we get our word pseudo. You know that, right? A false name, a false claim. Here it could be translated woodenly, put off the lie. And maybe in a broad sense, we are talking about the lie that the devil had us trapped with. You are what you do, and if you'll be righteous, you must do, 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 do. We put off that lie, and we hold on to the truth of the gospel that we are who Christ says we are, that we are righteous, that we are bought and paid for, that we are washed clean. But there's more than that, too. This is practical, because he says, let each one speak the truth to his neighbor. Don't lie, in general. It's worth saying once in a while that Christians have no business lying. We all do it sometimes, right? In fact, I think every sitcom I've ever seen has an episode where that's the little joke. Everyone lies in some way. Remember when mommy asked me if she looked good in those pants? Her, her, her. Jesus told us that Satan is the father of lies. He tells us that in John 8, 44, when he says to the Pharisees, whom he is rebuking, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Then he says, the devil is the father of lies, and when he lies, he is speaking in his native tongue. So when we lie, we are doing the will of the devil. 
And we're going back to the old Adam, the old Eve, back to our old father, putting on the old grave clothes. And if we wear these garments often and find that they fit easily and lying is easy, that these, these old clothes don't chafe and cut off circulation and make me go, oh, i got to get out of this and put the truth back on, that ought to be a huge alarm bell for us. Satan is the father of all lies. Big, little, harmless, white, all of them. Put off lies. Let everyone speak truth to his neighbor. Secondly, put off rage and put on self-control. If you're astute, you might say, hold on. You're saying put off rage. It says here, anger. You're trying to make it so that you can loophole your way through something, pastor? No, no, no. Be careful. Read what the first two commands are. They're, they're a unit. There's two commands linked together. And the first command is be angry. Be angry. That tells us that being angry is not a sin. Jesus was angry in the temple courts. Paul was angry at the Galatians. Elijah was angry at the prophets of Baal and the idolatry on Mount Carmel. We tend, I think, to act in the church today as if being angry is a sin. And so we use all these euphemisms and try and couch them in, in, in terms. You know, we don't even talk about righteous anger anymore, but righteous indignation. Righteously indignant you are. Indignant. You're annoyed that you are perceiving that you've been unfairly treated. Read the prophets in the Old Testament. They're full-on angry, and it's generally they're angry that others are being mistreated, treated unjustly or oppressed. If you're angry, you don't have to pretend that, oh, I'm just frustrated, I'm just exasperated, I'm grieved in my spirit. Just be, own it. Be angry and do not sin. That's the full command. Be angry and sin not. And yet, in verse 31 here, he lists anger along with spite and bitterness and all these other things that we are to put away. What do we make of that? Is that a contradiction? Be angry and sin not, put away anger. Hmm. I think the solution comes right afterwards in verse 25 here. When it, when it says, be angry and sin not, the very next words are, do not let the sun go down on your anger. They're quoting Psalm 4, a proverb that we find in Psalms, as it were. This is another good reminder, I think, for couples on Valentine's Day. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Right? That I make sure every single couple that I do counseling with, premarital counseling, I emphasize that. But it's also good advice for Christians everywhere, single, married, widowed, divorced, whatever. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you're angry with someone else and it's starting to set in, you don't want to let it get that foothold again. In James chapter 1, uh, which we read together, we're told, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We're also told that, that God himself is slow to anger. If he doesn't exercise his right to get real mad real quick, we certainly shouldn't. We have to be slow to anger. Godly anger comes really slow and leaves really quick. It leaves before the sun goes down. So slow to arrive and quick to turn around and leave, to be put away. Many great men and women have done many great things, even very righteous things, out of anger. But it's dangerous to remain in that state. Just like being tempted isn't a sin. But it's dangerous to continue on in a place or setting or situation where you're constantly tempted. Eventually, you're going to fall. If you're constantly angry, you're giving a foothold to the enemy. 
In fact, this is where the apostle warns us not to give the devil a place, a perch, a foothold, a few inches. As I was going over this message yesterday, we decided to make a fire because it was so cold out. I'm sitting on the couch. I got my laptop. I got my Bible. And our little chihuahua is next to me. And she looks up at me like, is this happening? And I pet her head a little bit. And Aaron said, don't do that. Don't do that. You know what's going to happen. I said, ah, she'll be okay. I pet her head a little more. Before I know it, her head's here. Her front paws come up. She's like a cat. Uh, They're not even dogs. She gets on my Bible. Her back legs are kicking the the keys on my keyboard. She's She's not happy just to sit next to me and be pet. And the same thing is true of the enemy. He's not happy just to have that place off to the side. John Owen, in perhaps the greatest work on this kind of stuff ever written, apart from the Bible, called Of the Mortification of Sin, writes this, Rise mightily against the first sign of sin, its first conceptions. Suffer it not to get the least ground. Do not say, Thus far it shall go, and no farther. If it have allowance for one step, it will take another. It is impossible to fix bounds to sin. It is like water in a channel. If it once breaks out, it will have its course. And if you are still angry about something that happened way back when, if you are still full of anger, and when you think of it, it it courses through you, and you hold it tight, even as you hold that person at a distance, be careful. Put that anger off. If you don't, you're clearing out a little spot for the enemy to camp out, and he won't be satisfied with that little spot. He's going to come in. I'll tell you, I have to confess, one failing in my pastoral ministry here has been that I have not called that out when I've encountered it. And people will tell me, I'm still so mad about this thing that this other person did, especially as another church member. I'm so angry about it when I think about it. I try to kind of, well, let's be understanding and ease the thing without a confrontation, because I don't want an awkward visit. Who wants an awkward visit? But I should be saying, listen, what you're doing here is giving the devil a foothold in your heart and in your life. And I am going to do my best to do that in the future. Don't let anger get nestled in there. Before you go to bed, put it to bed. Number three, put off stealing and put on honest work. If your background before you came to Christ was that you stole from others, St. Paul is saying, don't do it anymore. Whether it was straightforward pocketing stuff and embezzling or doing half-hearted work and milking the clock and taking off early and stealing from your employee in that way or selling an inferior product that you know isn't really worth what you're selling it for and stealing from your customers, none of that honors Christ. Stop! It also doesn't honor Christ to refuse to work if you are able because it's easier to let others care for you. This has been something that's been coming up in the news lately where you read stories about someone finally gets their business reopened and their employees are mad because they were making more sitting at home doing nothing than they will make coming back to work and actually earning a living. Well, according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3 and also the Holy Spirit, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. If a man will not work, it doesn't say if a man cannot work, certainly that's not the case. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. So each one should find work to do with his or her own hands. 
And notice, he doesn't say work with your own hands because you'll be so much more fulfilled than if you take money from others and you'll have a real sense of pride and self. He doesn't say work with your own hands because then you can stop living you know, month to month and you can save some money and buy some nice things. No, he says work with your own hands so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. This emphasis on each person being industrious and working is not in spite of, but because of concern for the poor and the responsibility of the church to care for the poor. Fourthly, put off corrupting talk and use your speech to build others up. This goes hand in hand with what we just saw a couple weeks ago, speaking the truth in love. You might say, oh yeah, number one, I got it. I put off lies and I, I tell the truth. However bold it is, however uncomfortable it is, however difficult it is to hear, I tell it. Make sure we tell it in love. Let no corrupting speech come out of your lips, but say only what is helpful for building others up. This word corrupting, by the way, is used six other times in the New Testament, always from the lips of Jesus and always talking about fruit. When Jesus talks about how a healthy tree bears good fruit and a diseased tree bears corrupt fruit. Slash corrupting fruit. Same thing. There's a reason we say a bad apple spoils the bunch. You leave a rotten or diseased apple in a bin with healthy fruit, it will spread and all begin to rot. Corrupting fruit, then, it's easy to see how this connects with our speech, with our words. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus tells us. What is overflowing out of our hearts? Back in verse 23, he told us we've been renewed in the spirit of our minds. Therefore, out of our mouths should come good speech. Out of a good tree comes good fruit. So don't say these things that tear down. My goodness, this is difficult when social media exists. But say what is helpful for building others up. Now here's a question. Why does the apostle stick in this aside and do not grieve the Holy Spirit right here? Isn't the Holy Spirit grieved by any sin? Like, couldn't he have put that anywhere in this list? Why Why here? Why in the section about speech? It's because the Spirit's work is tied incredibly closely with our words, with what we say. Look through the whole Old Testament. Whenever the Spirit of God comes upon someone, or in the New Testament, whenever people are filled with God's Holy Spirit, almost without exception, the result is that they speak. They open their mouth and words come out. The prophets speak truth to the people. Jesus' disciples begin to speak in other languages on Pentecost. Peter is given the words to say to the high council as the Spirit fills him in Acts 4. When Paul was filled with the Spirit, he began immediately to preach the gospel boldly in the synagogues. And we'll see in the very next chapter of Ephesians that it's the filling of the Spirit that prompts us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to and with one another. It's not a coincidence, I don't think, that they were tongues of fire above the head of each believer when the Holy Spirit came and filled them on Pentecost. It's the tongue, first and foremost, that the Spirit controls. Because, as St. James pointed out, while the tongue is a very small part of a person, it's very powerful. Just like the very small rudder can steer an enormous ship, either into the rocks to kill everyone, or out into sea to have a nice three-hour tour. Or fire starts real small and you can use it either to light a candle or light a lamp and bring light to the whole room or to burn down a city there's great power there the spirit helps us the one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control which means being in control of what we say what we do as well but certainly here we have in mind what we say 
Paul has been painstakingly showing us how the gifts of the Spirit build up the church. Remember, he's talking about how we are one body here. And when we use our tongues to tear people down instead, of course, that grieves the Spirit. And number five, miscellaneous. <laughs> There's a big long list there. As if to say, I'm not touching on everything here. Let the Spirit guide you in being compassionate and forgiving and uproot all the deeds of the flesh. Don't limit yourself to just these four things I just mentioned. But he says here to put off malice, bitterness, wrath, fighting, slander, etc. By the way, all these things can result from letting the sun go down on your anger. Right? You hold on to anger, what happens? Bitterness starts to take hold. Then malice, which is ill intent toward another person. Then wrath, which is when anger manifests itself in action. Actions which can include slander and fighting or clamor, as the ESV translates it for some reason. You've been there. I've been there. You hug that anger close and hold that person at a distance until it becomes who you are and then defines what you do. 1 Corinthians 13, though, tells us that's not love. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love isn't going, all right, I've got a list of everything that that person's done wrong, and they are in the chamber, ready to go when I need them. At the core of so many of these sins is choosing to remain in this state of anger. Because, again, in a dark, twisted way, it feels good. Friedrich Buchner put it very eloquently when he said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. How true that is. And God has a far better feast for us, my friends. As with Lazarus, when he came out of the tomb, Jesus said, remove from him those grave clothes. He did that for us too. He take, took us from, from death and brought us to life. He took off the filthy garments like we read in the, in the book of, of Zechariah, uh, Joshua the high priest is in the presence of God in filthy garments, and, and he says, take those off of him and put on him clean linen and a clean, pure turban. And when we look in the mirror and go, oh, I'm back in the grave clothes. Am I, am I dead? I'm back in the jumpsuit. Am I a prisoner again? A prisoner to sin? No, take them off. Continue to take them off. Off with the old and on with the new. It's not easy, but it is the, the very mission that we have when it comes to our own holiness in the Christian life. And the more we carry it out, the better we'll be able to carry out the commission that we have to make disciples. Not long ago, Aaron and I were chatting into the night, and out of nowhere, I don't know why, I asked her, Aaron, if you could pick two articles of clothing that I own, and magically I wouldn't own them anymore, what would they be? And I thought she'd go, hmm, oh, you're all right. Not even a second. She immediately answered. The only hesitation was, how do I find the best two? But she told me, like, <laughs> this polo shirt, good grief, it's older than, 
Well, it's, it's older than some guys back at the uh, soundboard. I'm just saying. Uh, this, this thing is, is from the 90s, had horizontal stripes. She said, you look like a real dork in that shirt. And I said, I'm a pastor. I'm a dad. I am a dork. She's like, you're not that big of a dork. And the other one was these, these dockers with this special hidden pocket for my Palm Pilot. She's like, eh, when, when you put that on, ugh, I don't know. I mean, I still love you, but. So you know what I did? I threw them away. I got rid of it. I didn't even put them in the clothing center. I, I'm not going to inflict these on the youth of today. This isn't happening. It reminded me of that scene in Mr. Mom. You remember when, when the little boy has his whoopee, his, his security blanket that he's held, holding on to a little too long, and the dad has his flannel shirt that he's worn every day for like four years, and they look at each other and toss them into the fire. Probably the garment that you need to put off in order to put on the new is something that is precious in a way to you. That brings you comfort, but it's cold comfort. It's never true satisfaction, which we only find in Christ. All these relics of the flesh, they bring us comfort like, like a man who's dying of thirst, eating more and more salty foods. We need to put off the old, to put on the new, to rise mightily against the first sign of sin. Not to say, this far shall you come and no farther, but you are banished from my life to build on and feed our relationship with our God because it is of most importance to us and to starve out and destroy and cut off our relationship with the world, the flesh, and the devil so that we will not be pushed into the world's mold, the pattern of self-seeking, the pattern of following our own rules, our own laws, and being a God to ourselves, so that we will not fill ourselves with lust and greed and, and wickedness and letting the flesh run rampant, and so that we will not give the devil a foothold, not one inch in our hearts. As we prepare to begin Lent, this may be the most apropos time to read this passage and think on this topic. What are the things we need to put off? as we begin on Wednesday, a 40-day journey toward Easter morning. What are the things that need to come off so that the new can come on? How have I been continuing to consort with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and how has that been damaging and getting in the way of my relationship with my Savior? Let's be in prayer about that, and let us put off the old and enter into a holy Lent this week. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a passage that does challenge us to... Not only not steal and not be malicious, but Lord, not to hold on to anger too long. Not to be rooted in any of the old self, the old Adam, the old Eve, the world, the flesh, the devil, but instead to hold fast to you. Lord, we pray that you will help us as we begin Lent this year to put off perhaps things that we have been wearing as long as I was wearing that ugly polo, Lord, for years and years. Lord, may we this year put them off and find that you are still at work in us, that we can continue to feed our relationship with you and that you have not moved. Lord, it is trite, but we know it is true that if God feels far away, it's not God that moved. And Lord, we pray that we would come back to you closer to you than ever during this time and that, Lord, we would find you waiting there and that, Lord, we would, we would find you to help us take off the old and put on the new. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.